Chapter 4 of Sentimental Education by Gustave Flaubert. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Inexpressible She One morning, in the month of December, while going to attend a law lecture, he thought he could observe more than ordinary animation in the Rue Saint-Jacques. The students were rushing precipitately out of the cafés, where, through the open windows, they were calling one another from one house to the other. The shopkeepers in the middle of the footpath were looking about them anxiously. The window shutters were fastened, and, when he reached the Rue Soufflot, he perceived a large assemblage around the Pantheon. Young men in groups numbering from five to a dozen walked along, arm in arm, and accosted the larger groups, which had stationed themselves here and there. At the lower end of the square, near the railings, men in blouses were holding forth, while policemen, with their three-cornered hats drawn over their ears and their hands behind their backs, were strolling up and down beside the walls, making the flags ring under the tread of their heavy boots. All wore a mysterious, wondering look. They were evidently expecting something to happen. Each held back a question which was on the edge of his lips. Frederick found himself close to a fair-haired young man with a prepossessing face and a moustache and a tuft of beard on his chin, like a dandy of Louis XIII's time. He asked the stranger what was the cause of the disorder. "'I haven't the least idea,' replied the other. "'Nor have they, for that matter. "'Tis their fashion just now. "'What a good joke!' And he burst out laughing. The petitions for reform, which had been signed at the quarters of the National Guard, together with the property census of Uman and other events beside, had, for the past six months, led to inexplicable gatherings of riotous crowds in Paris, and so frequently had they broken out anew that the newspapers had ceased to refer to them. "'This lacks graceful outline and colour," continued Frederick's neighbour. "'I am convinced, Messire, that we have degenerated.' In the good epoch of Louis the Eleventh, and even in that of Benjamin Constant, there was more mutinousness amongst the students. I find them as pacific as sheep, as stupid as greenhorns, and only fit to be grocers. Gadzooks! And these are what we call the youth of the schools. He held his arms wide apart after the fashion of Frederick Lemaitre and Robert Macaire. Youth of the schools, I give you my blessing. After this, addressing a rag-picker, who was moving a heap of oyster-shells up against the wall of a wine-merchant's house, Do you belong to them, the youth of the schools? The old man lifted up a hideous countenance, in which one could trace in the midst of a grey beard a red nose and two dull eyes, bloodshot from drink. No, you appear to me rather one of those men with patibulary faces whom we see in various groups liberally scattering gold. Oh, scatter it, my patriarch, scatter it. Corrupt me with the treasures of Albion. Are you English? I do not reject the presence of Artaxerxes. Let us have a little chat about the union of customs. Frederick felt a hand laid on his shoulder. It was Martinon, looking exceedingly pale. "'Well,' said he with a big sigh, "'another riot.' He was afraid of being compromised, and uttered complaints. Men in blouses especially made him feel uneasy, suggesting a connection with secret societies. 
You mean to say there are secret societies, said the young man with the mustaches. That is a worn-out dodge of the government to frighten the middle-class folk. Martino urged him to speak in a lower tone for fear of the police. You believe still in the police, do you? As a matter of fact, how do you know, monsieur, that I am not myself a police spy? And he looked at him in such a way that Martinon, much discomposed, was at first unable to see the joke. The people pushed them on, and they were all three compelled to stand on the little staircase which led, by one of the passages, to the new amphitheatre. The crowd soon broke up of its own accord. Many heads could be distinguished. They bowed towards the distinguished professor, Samuel Rondelot, who, wrapped in his big frock coat, with his silver spectacles held up high in the air, and breathing hard from his asthma, was advancing at an easy pace, on his way to deliver his lecture. This man was one of the judicial glories of the 19th century, the rival of the Zacharias and the Rudorfs. His new dignity of peer of France had in no way modified his external demeanor. He was known to be poor and was treated with profound respect. Meanwhile, at the lower end of the square, some persons cried out, Down with Guizot! Down with Pritchard! Down with the sold ones! Down with Louis-Philippe! The crowd swayed to and fro, and pressing against the gate of the courtyard, which was shut, prevented the professor from going further. He stopped in front of the staircase. He was speedily observed on the lowest of three steps. He spoke. The loud murmurs of the throng drowned his voice. Although at another time they might love him, they hated him now, for he was the representative of authority. Every time he tried to make himself understood, the outcries recommenced. He gesticulated with great energy to induce the students to follow him. He was answered by vociferations from all sides. He shrugged his shoulders disdainfully and plunged into the passage. Martinon profited by his situation to disappear at the same moment. What a coward, said Frederick. He was prudent, returned the other. There was an outburst of applause from the crowd, from whose point of view this retreat, on the part of the professor, appeared in the light of a victory. From every window, faces lighted with curiosity looked out. Some of those in the crowd struck up the Marseillaise. Others proposed to go to Berranger's house. To Lafitte's house! To Chateaubriand's house! To Voltaire's house! yelled the young man with the fair moustaches. The policemen tried to pass around, saying in the mildest tones they could assume, Move on, monsieur, move on, take yourselves off! Somebody exclaimed, down with the slaughterers! This was a form of insult usual since the troubles of the month of September. Everybody echoed it. The guardians of public order were hooted and hissed. They began to grow pale. One of them could endure it no longer, and, seeing a low-sized young man approaching too close, laughing in his teeth, pushed him back so roughly that he tumbled over on his back some five paces away, in front of a wine merchant's shop. All made way, but almost immediately afterwards the policeman rolled on the ground himself, felled by a blow from a species of Hercules, whose hair hung down like a bundle of tow under an oilskin cap. Having stopped for a few minutes on the corner of the Rue Saint-Jacques, he had very quickly laid down a large case, which he had been carrying, in order to make a spring at the policeman, and, holding down that functionary, punched his face unmercifully. The other policemen rushed to the rescue of their comrade. The terrible shop assistant was so powerfully built 
that it took four of them at least to get the better of him. Two of them shook him while keeping a grip on his collar. Two others dragged his arms. A fifth gave him digs of the knee and the ribs. And all of them called him brigand, assassin, rioter. With his breast bare and his clothes in rags, he protested that he was innocent. He could not, in cold blood, look at a child receiving a beating. My name is Dussardier. I'm employed at Messieurs Valincart Brothers' lace and fancy warehouse in the Rue de Clary. Where's my case? I want my case. He kept repeating, Dussardier, Rue de Clary, my case. However, he became quiet and, with a stoical air, allowed himself to be led towards the guardhouse in the Rue de Cartes. A flood of people came rushing after him. Frederick and the young man with the moustaches walked immediately behind full of admiration for the shopman, and indignant at the violence of power. As they advanced, the crowd became less thick. The policemen from time to time turned around, with threatening looks, and the rowdies, no longer having anything to do, and the spectators not having anything to look at, all drifted away by degrees. The passers-by, who met the procession as they came along, stared at Dussardier, and, in loud tones, gave vent to abusive remarks about him. One old woman, at her own door, bawled out that he had stolen a loaf of bread from her. This unjust accusation increased the wrath of the two friends. At length, they reached the guardhouse. Only about twenty persons were now left in the attenuated crowd, and the sight of the soldiers was enough to disperse them. Frederick and his companion boldly asked to have the man who had just been imprisoned delivered up. The sentinel threatened, if they persisted, to ram them into jail too. They said they required to see the commander of the guardhouse, and stated their names, and the fact that they were law students, declaring that the prisoner was one also. They were ushered into a room perfectly bare, in which, amid an atmosphere of smoke, four benches might be seen lining the roughly plastered walls. At the lower end there was an open wicket. Then appeared the sturdy face of Dussartier, who, with his hair all tussled, his honest little eyes, and his broad snout, suggested to one's mind, in a confused sort of way, the physiognomy of a good dog. "'Do you recognize us?' said Houzonnet. This was the name of the young man with the moustaches. "'Why?' stammered Dussardier. "'Don't play the fool any further,' returned the other. "'We know that you are, just like ourselves, a law student.' In spite of their winks, Dussardier failed to understand. He appeared to be collecting his thoughts. Then, suddenly, Has my case been found? Frederick raised his eyes, feeling much discouraged. Houzonnet, however, said promptly, Ha! Your case, in which you keep your notes of lectures. Yes, yes, make your mind easy about it. They made further pantomimic signs with redoubled energy, till Dussardier at last realized that they had come to help him, and he held his tongue, fearing that he might compromise them. Besides, he experienced a kind of shamefacedness at seeing himself raised to the social rank of student, and to an equality with those young men who had such white hands. "'Do you wish to send any message to anyone?' asked Frederick. "'No, thanks, to nobody. But your family?' He lowered his head without replying. The poor fellow was a bastard. The two friends stood quite astonished at his silence. "'Have you anything to smoke?' was Frederick's next question. He felt about, then drew forth from the depths of one of his pockets the remains of a pipe, a beautiful pipe, 
made of white talc with a shank of blackwood, a silver cover, and an amber mouthpiece. For the last three years he had been engaged in completing this masterpiece. He had been careful to keep the bowl of it constantly thrust into a kind of sheath of chamois, to smoke it as slowly as possible without ever letting it lie on any cold stone substance, and to hang it up every evening over the head of his bed. And now he shook out the fragments of it into his hands, the nails of which were covered with blood, and with his chin sunk on his chest, his pupils fixed and dilated, he contemplated this wreck of the thing that had yielded him such delight with a glance of unutterable sadness. "'Suppose we give him some cigars, eh?' said Houzonnet in a whisper, making a gesture as if he were reaching them out. Frederick had already laid down a cigar holder, filled on the edge of the wicket. "'Pray, take this. Good-bye. Cheer up!' Dussardier flung himself on the two hands that were held out towards him. He pressed them frantically, his voice choked with sobs. "'What? For me! For me!' The two friends tore themselves away from the effusive display of gratitude which he made, and went off to lunch together at the Café Tabouret, in front of the Luxembourg. While cutting up the beefsteak, Houzonnet informed his companion that he did work for the fashion journals, and manufactured catchwords for de l'art industriel. "'At Jacques Arnoux's establishment,' said Frederick. "'Do you know him?' "'Yes. No. That is to say, I, I have seen him. I have met him. He carelessly asked Houzonnet if he sometimes saw Arnouz's wife. From time to time, the Bohemian replied. Frederick did not venture to follow up his inquiries. This man henceforth would fill up a large space in his life. He paid the lunch bill without any protest on the other's part. There was a bond of mutual sympathy between them. They gave one another their respective addresses, and Houzonnet cordially invited Frederick to accompany him to the Rue de Fleurus. They had reached the middle of the garden, when Arnouz's clerk, holding his breath, twisted his features into a hideous grimace, and began to crow like a cock. Thereupon, all the cocks in the vicinity responded with prolonged, Cock-a-doodle-doos! It is a signal, explained Houzonnet. They stopped close to the Théâtre Bobino, in front of a house to which they had to find their way through an alley. In the skylight of a garret, between the Nasturtiums and the Sweet Peas, a young woman showed herself, bareheaded, in her stays, her two arms resting on the edge of a roof gutter. "'Good morrow, my angel! Good morrow, ducky!' said Houzonnet, sending her kisses. He made the barrier fly open with a kick and disappeared. Frederick waited for him all the week. He did not venture to call at Houzonnet's residence, lest it might look as if he were in a hurry to get a lunch in return for the one he had paid for, but he sought the clerk all over the Latin quarter. He came across him one evening, and brought him to his apartment on the Quai Napoleon. They had a long chat, and unbosomed themselves to each other. Houzonnet yearned after the glory and the gains of the theatre. He collaborated in the writing of vaudeville, which were not accepted, had heaps of plans, could turn a couplet. He sang out for Frederick a few of the verses he had composed. Then, noticing on one of the shelves a volume of Hugo and another of Lamartine, he broke out into sarcastic criticisms of the Romantic school. These poets had neither good sense nor correctness, and, above all, were not French. He plumed himself on his knowledge of the language, and analyzed the most beautiful phrases with that snarling severity, that academic taste which persons of playful disposition exhibit when they are discussing serious art. 
Frederick was wounded in his predilections, and he felt a desire to cut the discussion short. Why not take the risk at once of uttering the word on which his happiness depended? He asked this literary youth whether it would be possible to get an introduction into the Arnouz's house through his agency. The thing was declared to be quite easy, and they fixed upon the following day. Cousinet failed to keep the appointment, and on three subsequent occasions he did not turn up. One Saturday, about four o'clock, he made his appearance. But, taking advantage of the cab into which they had got, he drew up in front of the Théâtre Français to get a box ticket, got down at a tailor's shop, then at a dressmaker's, and wrote notes in the doorkeeper's lodge. At last, they came to the boulevard Montmartre. Frederick passed through the shop and went up the staircase. Arnoux recognized him through the glass partition in front of his desk, and while continuing to write, he stretched out his hand and laid it on Frederick's shoulder. Five or six persons, standing up, filled the narrow apartment, which was lighted by a single window looking out on the yard, a sofa of brown damask wool occupying the interior of an alcove between two door curtains of similar material. Upon the chimney-piece, covered with old papers, there was a bronze Venus. Two candelabra, garnished with rose-coloured wax tapers, supported it, one at each side. At the right, near a cardboard chest of drawers, a man, seated in an armchair, was reading the newspaper with his hat on. The walls were hidden from view beneath the array of prints and pictures, precious engravings of sketches by contemporary masters, adorned with dedications testifying the most sincere affection for Jacques Arnaud. "'You're getting on well all this time?' said he, turning round to Frederick. And without waiting for an answer, he asked, Ouzonnet, in a low tone, "'What is your friend's name?' Then, raising his voice, "'Take a cigar out of the box on the cardboard stand.' The office of L'Art Industriel, situated in a central position in Paris, was a convenient place of resort, a neutral ground wherein rivalries elbowed each other familiarly. On this day might be seen there Antenor Breve, who painted portraits of kings, Jules Brieux, who, by his sketches, was beginning to popularize the wars in Algeria, the caricaturist Sombari, the sculptor Burda, and others, and not a single one of them corresponded with the students' preconceived ideas. Their manners were simple, their talk free and easy, the mystic Lovaria told an obscene story, and the inventor of oriental landscape, the famous Dittmer, wore a knitted shirt under his waistcoat and went home in the omnibus. The first topic that came on the carpet was the case of a girl named Apollonie, formerly a model, whom Bourdieu alleged that he had seen on the boulevard in a carriage. Ouzonnet explained this metamorphosis through the succession of persons who had loved her. "'How well this sly dog knows the girls of Paris,' said Arnaud. "'After you, if there are any of them left, sire,' replied the Bohemian with a military salute, in imitation of the grenadier offering his flask to Napoleon. Then they talked about some pictures in which Apollonie had sat for the female figures. They criticized their absent brethren, expressing astonishment at the sums paid for their works, and they were all complaining at not having been sufficiently remunerated themselves, when the conversation was interrupted by the entrance of a man of middle stature, who had his coat fastened by a single button, and whose eyes glittered with a rather wild expression. "'What a lot of shopkeepers you are!' said he. "'God bless my soul! What does that signify?' 
The old masters did not trouble their heads about the million, Correggio Murillo. Ad Pellerin, said Sombari. But without the slightest notice of the epigram, he went on talking with such vehemence that Arnoux was forced to repeat twice to him. My wife wants you on Thursday, don't forget. This remark recalled Madame Arnoux to Frederick's thoughts. No doubt one might be able to reach her through the little room near the sofa. Arnoux had just opened the portiere, leading into it to get a pocket handkerchief, and Frederick had seen a washstand at the far end of the apartment. But at this point a kind of muttering sound came from the corner of the chimney-piece. It was caused by the personage who sat in the armchair reading the newspaper. He was a man of five feet nine inches in height, with rather heavy eyelashes, a head of grey hair, and an imposing appearance, and his name was Regimbach. "'What's the matter now, citizen?' said Arnoux. "'Another fresh piece of rascality on the part of government.' The thing that he was referring to was the dismissal of a schoolmaster. Pellerin again took up his parallel between Michelangelo and Shakespeare. Dittmer was taking himself off when Arnoux pulled him back in order to put two banknotes in his hand. Thereupon, Ouzonet said, considering this an opportune time, "'Couldn't you give me an advance, my dear master?' But Arnoux had resumed his seat, and was administering a severe reprimand to an old man of mean aspect who wore a pair of blue spectacles. "'Ha! A nice fellow you are, Père Isaac! Here are three works cried down, destroyed! Everybody is laughing at me! People know what they are now. What do you want me to do with them? I'll have to send them off to California, or to the devil! Hold your tongue!' The specialty of this old worthy consisted in attaching the signatures of the great masters at the bottom of these pictures. Arnoux refused to pay him, and dismissed him in a brutal fashion. Then, with an entire change of manner, he bowed to a gentleman of affectedly grave demeanour, who wore whiskers and displayed a white tie round his neck, and the cross of the Legion of Honour over his breast. With his elbow resting on the window fastening, he kept talking to him for a long time in honeyed tones. At last he burst out. Ah, well, I am not bothered with brokers, Count. The nobleman gave way, and Arnoux paid him down twenty-five louis. As soon as he had gone out, What a plague these big lords are! A lot of wretches, muttered Regenbach. As it grew later, Arnoux was much more busily occupied. He classified articles, tore open letters, set out accounts in a row, at the sound of hammering in the warehouse, he went out to look after the packing. Then he went back to his ordinary work, and, while he kept his steel pen running over the paper, he indulged in sharp witticisms. He had an invitation to dine with his lawyer that evening, and was starting next day for Belgium. The others chatted about the topics of the day. Cherubini's portrait, the hemicycle of the fine arts, and the next exhibition. Pellerin railed at the Institute. Scandalous stories and serious discussions got mixed up together. The apartment with its low ceiling was so much stuffed up that one could scarcely move, and the light of the rose-coloured wax tapers was obscured in the smoke of their cigars, like the sun rays in a fog. The door near the sofa flew open, and a tall, thin woman entered with abrupt movements, which made all the trinkets of her watch rattle under her black taffeta gown. It was the woman of whom Frederick had caught a glimpse last summer at the Palais Royal. Some of those present, addressing her by name, shook hands with her. Ouzonet had at last managed to extract from his employer the sum of fifty francs. The clock struck seven. All rose to go. Arnoux told Pellerin to remain, 
and accompanied Mademoiselle Vatnas into the dressing room. Frederick could not hear what they said. They spoke in whispers. However, the woman's voice was raised. I have been waiting ever since the job was done, six months ago. There was a long silence, and then Mademoiselle Vatnas reappeared. Arnaud had again promised her something. Oh ho, later we shall see. Goodbye, happy man, said she as she was going out. Arnaud quickly re-entered the dressing room, rubbed some cosmetic over his moustaches, raised his braces, stretched his straps, and, while he was washing his hands, I would require two over the door of two hundred and fifty apiece, in Boucher style. Is that understood? Be it so, said the artist, his face reddening. Good, and don't forget my wife. Frederick accompanied Pellerine to the top of the Faubourg Poissonniere and asked his permission to come to see him sometimes, a favour which was graciously accorded. Pellerine read every work on aesthetics in order to find out the true theory of the beautiful, convinced that, when he had discovered it, he would produce masterpieces. He surrounded himself with every imaginable auxiliary, drawings, plaster casts, models, engravings, and he kept searching about, eating his heart out. He blamed the weather, his nerves, his studio, went out into the street to find inspiration there, quivered with delight at the thought that he had caught it, then abandoned the work in which he was engaged and dreamed of another which should be finer. Thus, tormented by the desire for glory and wasting his days in discussions, believing in a thousand fooleries, in systems and criticisms, in the importance of a regulation or a reform in the domain of art, he had at fifty yet turned out nothing save mere sketches. His robust pride prevented him from experiencing any discouragement, but he was always irritated, and in that state of exaltation, at the same time factitious and natural, which is characteristic of comedians. On entering his studio, one's attention was directed towards two large pictures, in which the first tones of colour laid on here and there made on the white canvas spots of brown, red, and blue. A network of lines and chalk stretched overhead, like stitches of thread repeated twenty times, it was impossible to understand what it meant. Pellerin explained the subject of these two compositions by pointing out with his thumb the portions that were lacking. The first was intended to represent the madness of Nebuchadnezzar, and the second the burning of Rome by Nero. Frederick admired them. He admired academies of women with disheveled hair, landscapes in which trunks of trees twisted by the storm abounded, and above all freaks of the pen, imitations from memory of Calor, Rembrandt, and Goya, of which he did not know the models. Pellerin no longer set any value on these works of his youth. He was now all in favour of the grand style. He dogmatised eloquently about Phidias and Wickelman. The objects around him strengthened the force of his language. One saw a death's head and a criadio, yet a guns, a monk's habit. Frederick put it on. When he arrived early, he surprised the artist in his wretched folding bed, which was hidden from view by a strip of tapestry, for Pellerin went to bed late, being an assiduous frequenter of the theatres. An old woman in tatters attended on him. He dined at a cook's shop and lived without a mistress. His acquirements, picked up in the most irregular fashion, rendered his paradoxes amusing. His hatred of the vulgar and the bourgeois overflowed in sarcasms, marked by a superb lyricism, and he had such religious reverence for the masters that it raised him almost to their level. But why had he never spoken about Madame Arnoux? As for her son, at one time he called Pellerin a decent fellow, at other times a charlatan. 
Frederick was waiting for some disclosures on his part. One day, while turning over one of the portfolios in the studio, he thought he could trace in the portrait of a female bohemian, some resemblance to Mademoiselle Vatnas, and, as he felt interested in this lady, he desired to know what was her exact social position. She had been, as far as Pellerin could ascertain, originally a schoolmistress in the provinces. She now gave lessons in Paris, and tried to write for the small journals. According to Frederick, one would imagine, from her manners with Arnoux, that she was his mistress. Pshaw, he has others. Then, turning away his face, which reddened with shame as he realized the baseness of the suggestion, the young man added, with a swaggering air, Very likely his wife pays him back for it. Not at all. She is virtuous. Frederick again experienced a feeling of compunction, and the result was that his attendance at the office of the art journal became more marked than before. The big letters which formed the name of Arnoux on the marble plate above the shop seemed to him quite peculiar and pregnant with significance, like some sacred writing. The wide footpath, by its descent, facilitated his approach. The door almost turned of its own accord, and the handle, smooth to the touch, gave him the sensation of friendly and, as it were, intelligent fingers clasping his. Unconsciously, he became quite as punctual as Regimbach. Every day, Regimbach seated himself in the chimney corner, in his armchair, got hold of the National, and kept possession of it, expressing his thoughts by exclamations or by shrugs of the shoulders. From time to time, he would wipe his forehead with his pocket handkerchief, rolled up in a ball, which he usually stuck in between two buttons of his green frock coat. He had trousers with wrinkles, blutchers, and a long cravat, and his hat, with its turned-up brim, made him easily recognized, at a distance in a crowd. At eight o'clock in the morning, he descended the heights of Montmartre in order to imbibe white wine in the Rue Notre-Dame-des-Victoires. A late breakfast, following several games of billiards, brought him on to three o'clock. He then directed his steps towards the Passage de Panorama, where he had a glass of absinthe. After the sitting in Arnoux's shop, he entered the Bordelais smoking divan, where he swallowed some bitters, then, in place of returning home to his wife, he preferred to dine alone in a little café in the Rue Gaillon, where he desired them to serve up to him household dishes, natural things. Finally, he made his way to another billiard room, and remained there till midnight, in fact, till one o'clock in the morning, up till the last moment, when, the gas being put out and the window shutters fastened, the master of the establishment, worn out, begged of him to go. And it was not the love of drinking that attracted citizen Regimbach to these places, but the inveterate habit of talking politics at such resorts. With advancing age, he had lost his vivacity, and now exhibited only a silent moroseness. One would have said, judging from the gravity of his countenance, that he was turning over in his mind the affairs of the whole world. Nothing, however, came from it, and nobody, even amongst his own friends, knew him to have any occupation, although he gave himself out as being up to his eyes in business. Arnoux appeared to have a great esteem for him. One day, he said to Frederick, He knows a lot, I assure you. He is an able man. On another occasion, Regimbach spread over his desk papers relating to the Kaolin mines in Brittany. Arnoux referred to his own experience on the subject. Frederick showed himself more ceremonious toward Regimbach, going so far as to invite him from time to time to take a glass of absinthe, and, although he considered him a stupid man, he often remained a full hour in his company, solely because he was Jacques Arnoux's friend. 
After pushing forward some contemporary masters in the early portions of their career, the picture dealer, a man of progressive ideas, had tried, while clinging to his artistic ways, to extend his pecuniary profits. His object was to emancipate the fine arts, to get the sublime at a cheap rate. Over every industry associated with Parisian luxury, he exercised an influence which proved fortunate with respect to little things, but fatal with respect to great things. With his mania for pandering to public opinion, he made clever artists swerve from their true path, corrupted the strong, exhausted the weak, and got distinction for those of mediocre talent. He set them up with the assistance of his connections and of his magazine. Tyros and painting were ambitious of seeing their works in his shop window, and upholsterers brought specimens of furniture to his house. Frederick regarded him at the same time as a millionaire, as a dilettante, and as a man of action. However, he found many things that filled him with astonishment, for my lord Arnoux was rather sly in his commercial transactions. He received from the very heart of Germany or of Italy a picture purchased in Paris for 1,500 francs, and, exhibiting an invoice that brought the price up to 4,000, sold it over again through complacence for 3,500. One of his usual tricks with painters was to exact as a drink allowance an abatement in the purchase money of their pictures, under the pretense that he would bring out an engraving of it. He always, when selling such pictures, made a profit by the abatement, but the engraving never appeared. To those who complained that he had taken an advantage of them, he would reply by a slap on the stomach. Generous in other ways, he squandered money on cigars for his acquaintances. Deed endowed persons who were unknown, displayed enthusiasm about a work or a man, and after that, sticking to his opinion and regardless of consequences, spared no expense in journeys, correspondence, and advertising. He looked upon himself as very upright, and yielding to an irresistible impulse to unbosom himself, ingeniously told his friends about certain indelicate acts of which he had been guilty. Once, in order to annoy a member of his own trade, who inaugurated another art journal with a big banquet, he asked Frederick to write, under his own eyes, a little before the hour fixed for the entertainment, letters to the guests recalling the invitations. This impugns nobody's honour, do you understand? And the young man did not care to refuse the service. Next day, on entering with Ouzonnet Monsieur Arnoux's office, Frederick saw through the door, the one opening on the staircase, the hem of a lady's dress disappearing. A thousand pardons, said Cousinet, if I had known that there were women. Oh, as for that one, she is my own, replied Arnoux. She just came in to pay me a visit as she was passing. You don't say so, said Frederick. Why, yes, she is going back home again. The charm of the things around him was suddenly withdrawn. That which had seemed to him to be diffused vaguely through the place had now vanished or rather, it had never been there. He experienced an infinite amazement, and, as it were, the painful sensation of having been betrayed. Arnoux, while rummaging about in his drawer, began to smile. Was he laughing at him? The clerk laid down a bundle of moist papers on the table. Ha! The placards! exclaimed the picture dealer. I am not ready to dine this evening. Regimbar took up his hat. What, are you leaving me? Seven o'clock, said Regimbar. Frederick followed him. At the corner of the Rue Montmartre, he turned round. He glanced towards the windows of the first floor, and he laughed internally with self-pity as he recalled to mind with what love he had so often contemplated them. Where, then, did she reside? How was he to meet her now? Once more around the object of his desire, a solitude opened more immense than ever. 
Are you coming to take it? asked Reginbart. To take what? The absence. And, yielding to his importunities, Frederick allowed himself to be led toward the Bordelais smoking divan. Whilst his companion, leaning on his elbow, was staring at the decanter, he was turning his eyes to the right and to the left. But he caught a glimpse of Pellerin's profile on the footpath outside. The painter gave a quick tap on the window pane, and he had scarcely sat down when Reginbart asked him why they no longer saw him at the office of L'Arc Industriel. May I perish before ever I go back there again. The fellow is a brute, a mere tradesman, a wretch, a downright rogue. These insulting words harmonized with Frederick's present angry mood. Nevertheless, he was wounded, for it seemed to him that they hit at Madame Marnoux, more or less. Why, what has he done to you? said Reginbart. Pellerin stamped with his foot on the ground, and his only response was an energetic puff. He had been devoting himself to artistic work of a kind that he did not care to connect his name with, such as portraits for two crayons, or pasticchios from the great masters for amateurs of limited knowledge, and, as he felt humiliated by these inferior productions, he preferred to hold his tongue on the subject as a general rule. But Arnoux's dirty conduct exasperated him too much. He had to relieve his feelings. In accordance with an order which had been given in Frederick's very presence, he had brought Arnoux two pictures. Thereupon the dealer took the liberty of criticizing them. He found fault with the composition, the coloring, and the drawing. Above all, the drawing. He would not, in short, take them at any price. But, driven to extremities by a bill of falling due, Pellerin had to give them to the Jew Isaac, and, a fortnight later, Arnoux himself sold them to a Spaniard for two thousand francs. Not a sou less! What rascality! And faith he has done many other things just as bad. One of these mornings we'll see him in the dock. How you exaggerate, said Frederick in a timid voice. Come now, that's good, I exaggerate, exclaimed the artist, giving the table a great blow with his fist. This violence had the effect of completely restoring the young man's self-command. No doubt he might have acted more nicely. Still, if Arnoux found these two pictures... Bad, say it out. Are you a judge of them? Is this your profession? Now you know, my youngster. I don't allow this sort of thing on the part of mere amateurs. Ah, uh, well, it, it's not my business, said Frederick. Then what interest have you in defending him? returned Pellerin coldly. The young man faltered. But, since I am his friend, go and give him a hug for me. Good evening and the painter rushed away in a rage, and, of course, without paying for his drink. Frederick, whilst defending Arnoux, had convinced himself. In the heat of his eloquence, he was filled with tenderness towards this man, so intelligent and kind, whom his friends calumniated, and who had now to work all alone, abandoned by them. He could not resist a strange impulse to go at once and see him again. Ten minutes afterwards, he pushed open the door of the picture warehouse. Arnoux was preparing, with the assistance of his clerks, some huge placards for an exhibition of pictures. Halloa, what brings you back again? This question, simple though it was, embarrassed Frederick, and, at a loss for an answer, he asked whether they had happened to find a notebook of his, a little notebook with a blue leather cover. The one you put your letters to women in, said Arnoux. Frederick, blushing like a young girl, protested against such an assumption. Your verses, then, returned the picture dealer. He handled the pictorial specimens that were to be exhibited, discovering their form, colouring, and frames, and Frederick felt more and more irritated by his air of abstraction, and particularly by the mere appearance of his hands, large hands, rather soft, with flat nails. 
At length, Monsieur Arnoux arose, and saying, That's disposed of, he chucked the young man familiarly under the chin. Frederick was offended at this liberty, and recoiled a pace or two. Then he made a dash for the shop door, and passed out through it, as he imagined, for the last time in his life. Madame Arnoux herself had been lowered by the vulgarity of her husband. During the same week he got a letter from de Laurier, informing him that the clerk would be in Paris on the following Thursday. Then he flung himself back violently on this affection as one of a more solid and lofty character. A man of this sort was worth all the women in the world. He would no longer have any need of Regimbach, of Pellerin, of Ouzonnet, of anyone. In order to provide his friend with as comfortable lodgings as possible, he bought an iron bedstead and a second armchair, and stripped off some of his own bed covering to garnish this one properly. On Thursday morning he was dressing himself to go meet de Laurier when there was a ring at the door. Arnoux entered. Just one word. Yesterday I got a lovely trout from Geneva. We expect you by and by at seven o'clock sharp. The address is Rue de Choiseul, 24B. Don't forget. Frederick was obliged to sit down. His knees were tottering under him. He repeated to himself, At last! At last! Then he wrote to his tailor, to his hatter, and to his bootmaker, and he dispatched these three notes by three different messengers. The key turned in the lock, and the doorkeeper appeared with a trunk on his shoulder. Frederick, on seeing de Laurier, began to tremble like an adulteress under the glance of her husband. "'What has happened to you?' said de Laurier. "'Surely you got my letter?' Frederick had not enough energy left to lie. He opened his arms and flung himself on his friend's breast. Then the clerk told his story. His father thought to avoid giving an account of the expense of tutelage, fancying that the period limited for rendering such accounts was ten years. But, well up in legal procedure, de Laurier had managed to get the share coming to him from his mother into his clutches. Seven thousand francs clear, which he had there with him in an old pocket-book. "'Tis a reserve fund in case of misfortune. I must think over the best way of investing it, and find quarters for myself to-morrow morning. Today I'm perfectly free, and I'm entirely at your service, my old friend. Oh, don't put yourself about, said Frederick. If you had anything of importance to do this evening, come now, I would be a selfish wretch. This epithet, flung out at random, touched Frederick to the quick, like a reproachful hint. The doorkeeper had placed on the table close to the fire some chops, cold meat, a large lobster, some sweets for dessert, and two bottles of Bordeaux. De Laurier was touched by these excellent preparations to welcome his arrival. Upon my word, you're treating me like a king. They talked about their past and about the future, and from time to time they grasped each other's hands across the table, gazing at each other tenderly for a moment. But a messenger came with a new hat. De Laurier, in a loud tone, remarked that this headgear was very showy. Next came the tailor himself to fit on the coat, to which he had given a touch with the smoothing iron. "'One would imagine you were going to be married,' said de Laurier. An hour later, a third individual appeared on the scene, and drew forth from a big black bag a pair of shining patent leather boots. While Frederick was trying them on, the bootmaker slyly drew attention to the shoes of the young man from the country. "'Does monsieur require anything?' "'Thanks,' replied the clerk, pulling behind his chair his old shoes fastened with strings. This humiliating incident annoyed Frederick. At length he exclaimed, as if an idea had suddenly taken possession of him, Ha! Deuce take it! I was forgetting! What is it, pray? I have to dine in the city this evening. At the Dambreuse? Why did you never say anything to me about them in your letters? It is not at the Dambreuse's. It's at the Arnoux's. 
You should have let me know beforehand, said de Laurier. I would have come a day later. Impossible, returned Frederick abruptly. I only got the invitation this morning, a little while ago. And to redeem his error and distract his friend's mind from the occurrence, he proceeded to unfasten the tangled cords round the trunk and to arrange all his belongings in the chest of drawers, expressed his willingness to give him his own bed and offered to sleep himself in the dressing-room bedstead. Then, as soon as it was four o'clock, he began the preparations for his toilet. "'You have plenty of time,' said the other. At last he was dressed, and off he went. "'That's the way with the rich,' thought Delaurier. And he went to dine in the Rue Saint-Jacques, at a little restaurant kept by a man he knew. Frederick stopped several times while going up the stairs. So violently did his heart beat. One of his gloves, which was too tight, burst, and while he was fastening back the torn part under his shirt cuff, Arnoux, who was mounting the stairs behind him, took his arm and led him in. The anteroom, decorated in the Chinese fashion, had a painted lantern hanging from the ceiling, and bamboos in the corners. As he was passing into the drawing-room, Frederick stumbled against a tiger skin. The place had not yet been lighted up, but two lamps were burning in the boudoir in the far corner. Mademoiselle Marthe came to announce that her mamma was dressing. Arnoux raised her as high as his mouth in order to kiss her. Then, as he wished to go to the cellar himself to select certain bottles of wine, he left Frederick with the little girl. She had grown much larger since the trip in the steamboat. Her dark hair descended in long ringlets, which curled over her bare arms. Her dress, more puffed out than the petticoat of a danseuse, allowed her rosy calves to be seen, and her pretty childlike form had all the fresh odour of a bunch of flowers. She received the young gentleman's compliments with a coquettish air, fixed on him her large, dreamy eyes, then slipping on the carpet amid the furniture, disappeared like a cat. After this, he no longer felt ill at ease. The globes of the lamps, covered with a paper lace work, sent forth a white light, softening the colour of the walls, hung with mauve satin. Through the fender bars, as through the slits in a big fan, the coal could be seen in the fireplace, and close beside the clock there was a little chest with silver clasps. Here and there things lay about which gave the place a look of home, a doll in the middle of the sofa, a fichu against the back of a chair, and, on the work table, a knitted woolen vest from which two ivory needles were hanging with their points downwards. It was altogether a peaceful spot, suggesting the idea of propriety and innocent family life. Arnoux returned, and Madame Arnoux appeared at the other doorway. As she was enveloped in shadow, the young man could at first distinguish only her head. She wore a black velvet gown, and in her hair she had fastened a long Algerian cap, in a red silk net, which, coiling round her comb, fell over her left shoulder. Arnoux introduced Frederick. Oh, I remember Monsieur perfectly well, she responded. Then the guests arrived, nearly all at the same time. Dittmer, Lavaria, Bourrier, the composer Rosenwald, the poet Théophile Loris, two art critics, colleagues of Ouzonnet, a paper manufacturer, and in the rear, the illustrious Pierre-Paul Mincieux, the last representative of the Grand School of Painting, who blithely carried along with his glory, his forty-five years, and his big paunch. When they were passing into the dining room, Madame Arnoux took his arm. A chair had been left vacant for Pellerin. Arnoux, though he took advantage of him, was fond of him. Besides, he was afraid of his terrible tongue, so much so that, in order to soften him, he had given a portrait of him in L'Art Industriel, accompanied by exaggerated eulogies, and Pellerin, more sensitive about distinction than about money, 
made his appearance about eight o'clock, quite out of breath. Frederick fancied that they had been a long time reconciled. He liked the company, the dishes, everything. The dining room, which resembled a medieval parlour, was hung with stamped leather. A Dutch whatnot faced a rack of chibooks, and around the table the bohemian glasses, variously coloured, had, in the midst of the flowers and fruits, the effect of an illumination in a garden. He had to make his choice between ten sorts of mustard. He partook of despaccio, of curry, of ginger, of Corsican blackbirds, and a species of Roman macaroni called lasagna. He drank extraordinary wines, lip freely and toquet. Arnoux indeed prided himself on entertaining people in good style. With an eye to the procurement of eatables, he paid court to mail-coach drivers and was in league with the cooks of great houses who communicated to him the secrets of rare sauces. But Frederick was particularly amused by the conversation. His taste for travelling was tickled by Dittmer, who talked about the East. He gratified his curiosity about theatrical matters by listening to Rosenwald's chat about the opera, and the atrocious existence of Bohemia assumed for him a droll aspect when seen through the gaiety of Houzonnet, who related, in a picturesque fashion, how he had spent an entire winter with no food except Dutch cheese. Then, a discussion between Lavaria and Bourieux about the Florentine school gave him new ideas with regard to masterpieces, widened his horizon, and he found difficulty in retaining his enthusiasm when Pellerin exclaimed, Don't bother me with your hideous reality. What does it mean, reality? Some see things black, others blue. The multitude sees them brute fashion. There is nothing less natural than Michelangelo. There is nothing more powerful. The anxiety about external truth is a mark of contemporary baseness, and art will become, if things go on that way, a sort of poor joke, as much below religion as it is below poetry, and as much below politics as it is below business. You will never reach its end. Yes, its end, which is to cause within us an impersonal exaltation with petty works, in spite of all your finished execution. Look, for instance, at Basolier's pictures. They are pretty, coquettish, spruce, and by no means dull. You might put them into your pocket, bring them with you when you are travelling. Notaries buy them for 20,000 francs, while pictures of the ideal type are sold for three sous. But without ideality, there is no grandeur. Without grandeur, there is no beauty. Olympus is a mountain. The most swagger monument will always be the pyramids. Exuberance is better than taste. The desert is better than a street pavement and a savage is better than a hairdresser. Frederick, as these words fell upon his ear, glanced towards Madame Arnoux. They sank into his soul like metals falling into a furnace, added to his passion, and supplied the material of love. His chair was three seats below hers on the same side. From time to time she bent forward a little, turning aside her head to address a few words to her little daughter, and, as she smiled on these occasions, a dimple took shape on her cheek, giving to her face an expression of more dainty good nature. As soon as the time came for the gentlemen to take their wine, she disappeared. The conversation became more free and easy. Monsieur Arnoux shone in it, and Frederick was astonished at the cynicism of men. However, their preoccupation with women established between them and him, as it were, an equality, which raised him in his own estimation. When they had returned to the drawing-room, he took up, to keep himself in countenance, one of the albums which lay about on the table. The great artists of the day had illustrated them with drawings, had written in them snatches of verse or prose, 
or their signatures simply. In the midst of famous names, he found many that he had never heard of before, and original thoughts appeared only underneath the flood of nonsense. All these effusions contained a more or less direct expression of homage towards Madame Arnoux. Frederick would have been afraid to write a line beside them. She went into her boudoir to look at the little chest with silver clasps which he had noticed on the mantel shelf. It was a present from her husband, a work of the Renaissance. Arnoux's friends complimented him, and his wife thanked him. His tender emotions were aroused, and before all the guests he gave her a kiss. After this they all chatted in groups here and there. The worthy Mainsier was with Madame Arnoux on an easy chair close beside the fire. She was leaning forwards towards his ear. Their heads were just touching, and Frederick would have been glad to become deaf, infirm, and ugly if, instead, he had an illustrious name and white hair. In short, if he only happened to possess something which would install him in such intimate association with her. He began once more to eat out his heart, furious at the idea of being so young a man, but she came into the corner of the drawing-room in which he was sitting, asked him whether he was acquainted with any of the guests, whether he was fond of painting, how long he had been a student in Paris. Every word that came out of her mouth seemed to Frederick something entirely new, an exclusive appendage of her personality. He gazed attentively at the fringes of her headdress, the ends of which caressed her bare shoulder, and he was unable to take away his eyes. He plunged his soul into the whiteness of that feminine flesh, and yet he did not venture to raise his eyelids to glance at her higher face to face. Rosenwald interrupted them, begging of Madame Arnoux to sing something. He played a prelude. She waited, her lips opened slightly, and a sound, pure, long-continued, silvery, ascended into the air. Frederick did not understand a single one of the Italian words. The song began with a grave measure, something like church music. Then, in a more animated strain, with a crescendo movement, it broke into repeated bursts of sound, then suddenly subsided, and the melody came back again in a tender fashion with a wide and easy swing. She stood beside the keyboard with her arms hanging down and a far-off look on her face. Sometimes, in order to read the music, she advanced her forehead for a moment, and her eyelashes moved to and fro. Her contralto voice in the low notes took a mournful intonation, which had a chilling effect on the listener, and then her beautiful head, with those great brows of hers, bent over her shoulder. Her bosom swelled, her eyes were wide apart, her neck, from which roulades made their escape, fell back as if under aerial kisses. She flung out three sharp notes, came down again, cast forth one higher still, and, after a silence, finished with an organ point. Rosenwald did not leave the piano. He continued playing to amuse himself. From time to time, a guest stole away. At eleven o'clock, as the last of them were going off, Arnoux went out along with Pellerin, under the pretext of seeing him home. He was one of those people who say that they are ill when they do not take a turn after dinner. Madame Arnoux had made her way towards the anteroom. Dittmer and Ouzonet bowed to her. She stretched out her hand to them. She did the same to Frederick, and he felt, as it were, something penetrating every particle of his skin. He quitted his friends. He wished to be alone. His heart was overflowing. Why had she offered him her hand? Was it a thoughtless act, or an encouragement? Come now, I am mad. Besides, what did it matter? When he could now visit her entirely at his ease live in the very atmosphere she breathed. The streets were deserted. Now and then a heavy wagon would roll past, shaking the pavements. The houses came one after another with their grey fronts, their closed windows, 
and he thought with disdain of all those human beings who lived behind those walls without having seen her, and not one of whom dreamed of her existence. He had no consciousness of his surroundings, of space, of anything, and striking the ground with his heel, rapping with his walking stick on the shutters of the shops, he kept walking on continually at random, in a state of excitement, carried away by his emotions. Suddenly he felt himself surrounded by a circle of damp air, and found that he was on the edge of the keys. The gas lamps shone in two straight lines, which ran on endlessly, and long red flames flickered in the depths of the water. The waves were slate-coloured, while the sky, which was of a clearer hue, seemed to be supported by vast masses of shadow that rose on each side of the river. The darkness was intensified by buildings whose outlines the eye could not distinguish. A luminous haze floated above the roofs further on. All the noises of the night had melted into a single monotonous hum. He stopped in the middle of the Pont Neuf, and, taking off his hat and exposing his chest, he drank in the air. And now he felt as if something that was inexhaustible were rising up from the very depths of his being, and a flux of tenderness that enervated him, like the motion of the waves under his eyes. A church clock slowly struck one, like a voice calling out to him. Then he was seized with one of those shuddering sensations of the soul in which one seems to be transported into a higher world. He felt, as it were, endowed with some extraordinary faculty, the aim of which he could not determine. He seriously asked himself whether he would be a great painter or a great poet, and he decided in favor of painting, for the exigencies of this profession would bring him into contact with Madame Arnaud. So then he had found his vocation. The object of his existence was now perfectly clear, and there could be no mistake about the future. When he had shut his door, he heard someone snoring in the dark closet near his apartment. It was his friend. He no longer bestowed a thought on him. His own face presented itself to his view in the glass. He thought himself handsome, and for a minute he remained gazing at himself. End of chapter 4